Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Ultra Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. Phone lines, as always, 1 855 450 Noah, it's 1 450 Send me an email. I'm at live at My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. And joining me is my co host, the one and only Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. Good evening, Noah. So tonight we have uh, a little bit of a YouTube heavy episode, and I thought I would uh, start by sharing a little something about YouTube. I hadn't talked with Noah about this before. We'll just see where this goes. But Uh-oh. Um, So by now, most people have heard of this guy, Oliver Anthony, and his song, Richmond, North of Richmond. Uh, and the reason why I bring that up related to YouTube is because that is one of the few Google properties that I use with relative frequency. And it surfaced this song for me before it went viral. So it had like 900,000 or a million views, which sounds like a lot, but relative to now where it's sitting at somewhere close to 50 million views on YouTube and some 40 million or something on Spotify. Mm -hmm. I just thought that was an interesting thing where I've never actually been, um, I'm going to use air quotes here, a part of a viral situation before, especially when it's getting off the ground. So for What's me, it's the name of this? Pretty... Th- I haven't heard of it. I'll just be, I'll just. You have it. heard of it. I, have... I sent it to you. Oh, okay. What was, the, what was the name? What's the name of the song? <laughs> so it's called Richmond, Rich Men, North of Richmond. Oh, okay. Yeah. Now that I see the. Yeah. Yeah, 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 so yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, it's just been interesting because the reason why I find that interesting is like, YouTube has definitely worked to try and figure me out. Like it knows I'm a guy. It surfaces things that most typical males would be interested in, even though I don't go looking for some of that type. Like for some reason, it sends me lady golf videos, but not like golf videos for women, but like golf videos by attractive women. So it's, <laughs> YouTube is YouTube is really cranking their algorithm on me. And at this one, at least got me. I thought that was kind of interesting. Oh, it is living in the new world. With an old soul. Is this what you, uh, when you go out to your garden and you play, is this what you do? You put the sun, put the earbuds in, go out there like, I'm going to take care of my chickens. Well, you know, actually, I'm, I'm a big country fan, um, as is my wife. And I also like music that's off the beaten path. And I think that's what they've kind of honed in on, right? Mm-hmm. Like that I don't. I don't go and watch like mainstream country or mainstream anything. Like if I'm going to YouTube for music, it's for something a little off the beaten path. So this is definitely more bluegrass. So I just thought it was interesting that I finally got ahead of one of these viral crazes. I'm not the last one to know about it. Thanks, YouTube. Steve, Steve, I'm finally caught up with the internet and now I'm popular or something and into the hip trend. I just have this visual in my head of... Of Doctor Evil from, uh, from Austin Powers, I'm hip, 
I'm with yes, it. Yes, exactly. Look at the video. Look, now it's gaining in views, million views. Well, we're going to show you how you can take control of YouTube and you can experience the wonder that is original country music of YouTube without having to trade your privacy to do it. But first, Steve, should we get into some feedback? Absolutely. That's the right answer. All right. First email comes in from Semantic Scholar. Something tells me that's not his real name. He writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. I'm a new listener, and I found the discussion in episode 351 quite insightful. I signed up for Beeper, and I'm loving it. I wanted to ask what requirements you guys have for your kids and the platforms that they're on. My daughter is 14. I'm not sure I want to tie her or pay for a cell phone yet. And I'm wondering what you guys, how you guys address this with your families. My other question is, have you guys ever looked at other chat floor platforms, things like Rocket Chat, Signal, XMPP, etc.? What do you think of those? And why beeper over them? Thanks for what you guys do. I'm relatively new, but I'm hooked. The semantic scholar. So, Steve, <laughs> something tells me we're going to have slightly different approaches here, to say the least. Well, <laughs> how, how do you deal with your kids and wanting to be on platforms? They don't get to. Okay, uh, that was easy. Just full stop. Um, there is no... So, my kids are 11 and 7. So, there's there's some amount there, but we make sure that there's so much else to experience in the world that they don't need to spend all, all of their time interacting with quote unquote their friends online like if you want to get get your friends call them over and have a sleepover mm -hmm. go over to their house like we're fine with that and you know we've got steam and plenty of video games and we've got technology literally seething from our house it's mm -hmm. not like i'm a luddite but <laughs> we um but you're, yeah, you're, you're wanting to be responsible about it and you want to teach them the life skills to be people rather than just have them slaves addicted to a screen yeah, and you know, um, I'll I'll yield the floor after this comment because I know that um, I could. This hits a really sore spot for me. You don't say. But there's a lot of literature out there about how bad screens are for your brain, and I I think particularly of a book called Reader Come Home, but that's just one of the many um, sources of literature out there that that talk about the areas of your brain that go dark when you are using a screen to the point where it atrophies and. Without getting on the soapbox, I'll just say there's this idea of deep thinking that happens in the section of your brain that goes dark when you use a screen. Mm. And that has prevented a lot of, of deep analysis for a lot of people because that section of the brain is atrophying and it's terrible. And it's not something I'm going to let, no matter how much he hates me for it now, I'm not going to let my 11-year-old throw a hissy fit and, and force me into <laughs> giving him lots of screens. So I, I don't... I agree with your general concern, and I do absolutely see, uh, su suffice to say, like, especially during the pandemic, I watched, and it just, it literally just crushed my soul to watch these kids, and you could tell that in the morning, mom or dad would come in, and they'd hand them an iPad, they'd hand them the tablet, and so they're in their jammies in the bed, and they have, like, three bags of, you know, graham crackers or whatever sitting next to them, and, you know, our kids, they would do this inside of their home and then they would come and take a break and mom would get them a snack and then they go back in. You could watch this because I mean, the whole class is streamed, right? You could watch never once from 730 in the morning until till the kids left at, at three o'clock. Did an adult ever walk into that room? Occasionally, the kid would wander out, presumably to go use the restroom or something like that, and then crawl back into bed in their jammies and like no real interaction with people 
you know, other kids are taking a break and they're just kind of sitting there clicking around. It, it is sad that we've we've connected our kids and essentially said, hey, the Internet can babysit my child for me. So, so I share your concern from that aspect. We take a slightly different approach from the standpoint that I have acquiesced. And I, Steve would tell me, I think, that I've traded in my parent card, which maybe I have to a degree. But I've, I've acquiesced. And as my kids have gotten older and started to get involved with kids at school, They'll say, hey, can I be on this platform? No. How about that platform? No. I want to put myself on the internet. Tell me the mistakes that you'll make and how you're going to, and what you're going to think about it in 10 years. I haven't really thought about it. Great. No. And, and at some point, it, it just got to the point where all of their friends are coordinating sleepovers or coordinating this or talking about that. And our kids just felt like they were left out. And so I've slowly, begrudgingly allowed them in small little areas to engage with other people and what that looks like, at least for us. So I, we have a family instance of, as you might have guessed, Matrix, and that works for all of the, hey, can I do this or hey, can I do that? And that's been great for our little family stuff. As they wanted to branch out to other people, I was actually kind of surprised because if my kid came home and said, yeah, I went to school with this kid and their parents said that this is some really super secure, ultra encrypted thing or another I probably wouldn't let my kid download that thing, but apparently other parents do. So there's been a couple of kids that have gotten on Matrix to be able to talk to my kids, which is fine. That's great. Federation. Yay. But for the ones that haven't, what I've fallen back to is just I've gotten them a JMP number and I've let them kind of text through that. Now, the two little things that I've put on there is so it's three bucks a month or something like that. They have to earn and pay for the three dollar a month thing, which was a better deal than what I had when a kid. When I was a kid, I went and talked to my parents. I'm like, "Hey, I want a cell phone," and they went, "Great." Cell phones are like at the time a hundred dollars a month plus. It's like a dollar ninety a minute. So basically, if you work a full time job, you might be able to afford to talk for thirty seconds on a cell phone. It's like, okay, well, as a whatever year old, I'm, I guess I'm not going to do that thing. But our kids, you know, feed the dog and and do some of the chores. It gets them motivated to go earn money. And then there's something that they can invest in, which is the communication with their friends. And, of course, they're paying uh, per month to have that. So I've I've acquiesced that far to let them do that. As far as where we draw the lines, I don't really want my kids on any platform until they're old enough to understand the implications of being on platforms. And any platform I put my kid on – I would 100% tell you that you as the parent need to be signed into that account as well. You need to be watching all of the traffic that goes back and forth. And I tell you that as the guy who has to come in in very unfortunate circumstances trying to figure out why so-and-so isn't here anymore and why so-and-so ran away or, or did this or, or did that. And oftentimes the answer is it started with they met so-and-so on the Internet and then and usually the end then is never a good thing. So. You as a parent have to keep an eye on those things. And so to that, to, from that standpoint, I would tell you whatever I would try to keep them on as few flat platforms as possible until they get to an age where they're making their own decisions and, and so on and so forth. And then I would tell you to watch those platforms like a hawk and be a helicopter parent in that way. Know what your kids are doing on the Internet. And it's not always them that gets into trouble. Oftentimes it comes from the outside. The request comes in. All of my kids at some point have been hit up on Steam and it's probably innocent, but you never really know. And so we have a hard rule in our house. They don't get to communicate with people that they don't know, period, end of story. And if I catch that, I will just take their laptop away or their tablet or whatever it is, and they'll just not have that device anymore and and, uh, you know, until they're 18 and go buy one themselves. So and and I'm, I'm blessed that all of my kids have fortunately respected that and, and, and follow that rule. Um, but 
it is. It's a complicated thing, especially as you have kids and, and other families that prioritize different things. They don't necessarily share our values of privacy and and and, you know, keeping kids off the Internet and, and all of those kinds of things. To some people, just the more the better. Um, and so we fight that. And we fight that even with the school to a degree. Our second email comes in from Intrinsic. Again, I'm thinking that's not his real name. Hey, guys. Bringing the show polished, informative, fun, and Linuxy. It's perfect. The best Linux podcast on the interwebs. Keep up the great work. Thanks for what you both do. Intrinsic. Appreciate uh, you writing in. Charlie writes in and asks for recommendations on a soldering iron. Good day, everyone. Not software or Linux, but a tech question. What's a good sub $100 portable soldering iron for tech repair? The TS-101 versus the Pinesole V2 or others. Thoughts on an AC versus a smart USB-C powered soldering iron. Also, can you power the USB soldering iron via a solar panel? Thanks, Charlie. So I'm going to start and work my way backwards. Um, Let's start with this. So, Steve, how much power would you need in order to take a solar panel and power a, let's say, a 36-watt soldering iron, 40-watt soldering iron? Yeah, you need something fairly substantial just because the soldering iron has to really ramp up when it's heating up for the first time. And when you're applying uh, the heat to something for that heat transfer, it has to suck a ton of power all at once, right? So mm. it the you're, you can't just say, oh, well, I can get a solar panel that puts out this because the, the soldering iron has peaks, right? So mm-hmm. while it may be like a 30-watt soldering iron or whatever it's going to pull a ton at one time just like well pumps or anything else where they have a high kick up phase and your solar panel might struggle to do that now a solar panel with a battery so that you have a pool of energy might be feasible Mm -hmm. i'm gonna guess that you're probably gonna want some sort of a battery apparatus that can charge battery and then run off of there as far as actual soldering irons i would go pine soul all the way it is a fantastic device in fact, the only bad thing I have to say about it is it might take you a minute to get it. They're not always pine products routinely punch above their weight class. Whatever it is you think you're paying for, I always feel like I get more for my money than than I've actually paid out. But it's not something you can do on a dime. It's something that you've got to plan a little bit ahead of time because shipping is, is sometimes a bit weird. Now, there's another device that you might want to be aware of, and you mention the TS uh, was it 101? Yeah, TS 101. So that is the improved version of the TS 100. Now I have the TS 100, and it is my the, the guys were giving me a hard time before the show. It is my favorite cheap Chinese piece of junk knockoff of a pine sole, but it's available on Amazon, and so you can get it ordered to you very quickly. Now things that I like about, and again I don't have the 101, I have the 100, but same thing. Thing that I like about the TS 100, it it runs off of 12 volts, so you can take the uh, the little barrel connector and run it into a battery and power it off of that. Adjustable power or temperature settings, which is fantastic, and, and this is a big one. I have started to judge soldering irons based on how long I can get the tips to run for because there was a day where Radio Shack and, and Weller made really good soldering irons, and you could buy them, and they'd last forever, and then at some point, Radio Shack started making a bunch of cheap Chinese junk, and then they kind of went down the tubes, and Weller hit or miss these days. So these 
these little micro soldering irons that have selectable temperatures and all the rest of it and little computers built into them, they're really actually fantastic and they work really, really well. And we do, at Ultispeed, we do a ton of soldering. So every time we do access control, each one of those readers is like six, six eight wire, something like that. And then you've got all of the locking controls. We solder and heat shrink every one of those connections to make sure we get a solid electrical connection. And we do all of that with a TS-100. Um, so the TS-100, TS-101, or the Pinesol, if your Pinesol is actually cheaper than the TS-101 and Type-C and does the same job. So I think it's actually a better device, but you just have to be willing and able to, uh, to wait for it. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. For the week of August 27th, 2023, here's the Linux and open source news. Not only has Linux turned 32 years old, but the Linux 6.5 kernel has been released as well. Bode Linux 7.0 is out. Magia version 9 has been released. QEMU 8.1 is released with a new Pipewire audio backend. GNU Core Utils 9.5 as an experimental enable systemd option. Clam AV 1.2 is out. And Firefox 117 has been released. In open source hardware news, Card.io is a credit card-sized open-source ECG monitor. And Cyphead has unveiled three new hardware platforms based on their LM4A RISC-V system on a module found in their Lychee Pi 4A single-board computer. The three new hardware platforms are the Lychee Cluster, the Lychee Pad, which is a 10-inch tablet running Android 13 or Debian, and the Lychee Console, a portable Linux console with a small 7-inch display and built-in keyboard. In open-source AI news, Alibaba adopts the open-source model for its AI offerings. Stability AI, makers of the image generation AI Stable Diffusion, have recently launched StableChat, a web-based chat interface for their open-access language model, Stable Beluga. Entire Labs has announced the Entire LLM Gateway, an open-source implementation framework that provides security teams with visibility and control to monitor the use of ChatGPT and other large language models in their environment. The LLM gateway is available on GitHub. And Facebook continues to be attacked for claiming that its Llama 2 LLM is open source. And more than 75% of enterprises do not plan on commercial use of LLMs in production, citing data privacy as a primary concern. In security news, a ransomware campaign by the recently emerged Monty Ransomware Group is targeting victims with a new Linux variant of its malware. The threat group is the latest in a growing number of ransomware groups finding profit in going after Linux infrastructure. Researchers at Trend Micro said that the threat group is now deploying a Linux encryptor to target victims in the legal and government sectors. And lastly, someone has gotten Linux to run on a Commodore 64 simulator with a boot time of 1.6 days. one 450 Ryan from Georgia, you're on Ask Noah. Good evening. Hey, Noah. Uh, and Steve, thanks for taking my call. You bet. I have a, uh, I'm doing some work on my home uh, network, and I kind of just have a run-of-the-mill um, router and um, Wi-Fi right now. But I'm I've got some uh, routers that I've recently bought and put uh, OpenWRT installed OpenWRT on, and I'm trying to kind of transition over to uh, to using these. Uh, uh, these routers on my home network. And I just had some um, general questions. I'm 
trying to learn a little bit more about networking in general, what I wanted to do was to plug uh, a new router, add this new router into my network. But um, I know that creates a problem having two different routers active. And what I'm trying to understand is um, if you can essentially create like a subnet by plugging a new router in, uh, you know, when to land uh, that I can to use the new router without dismantling, you know, the old until I'm comfortable with the new. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that make sense? What I'm it does. So, okay. So you, you're dealing with a couple different things here. So the, so the, the, the first thing is the reason that we don't want to plug multiple routers in oftentimes is because if done improperly, your router is doing more than just being a router, right? Routing is one of the things that it's doing. But the other thing it's doing is it's often acting as a DHCP server. Depending on the model you bought, it might also be doing DNS and it could even be doing Wi-Fi and all the rest of it. And so if you start getting too many of those things operating, they can conflict with each other. When you ask about making a subnet or putting one router downstream of another router, indeed, that's really what the Internet is, right? You plug your router into your ISP. You can kind of think of your cable modem almost like a really big switch, and you've plugged into their switch port. But eventually, your ISP has a router, and they uplink somewhere else, and that bigger pipe ISP uplinks somewhere else, and that's largely how the Internet is constructed. So can you plug one router into another? Absolutely. Will it work? 100% it will. So you'd plug your from your, your existing router, you'd plug a cable into the WAN port of your new router. Now, your new router gets, let's say, a 192.168.0 address. It's not a publicly routable IP, but your router doesn't care. Networking principles still function, so that'll work just fine. What breaks? You create something called the double NAT. What NATing is is essentially a way to where you can have one public IP address, but you can do multiple things over it. In order for that to work, your computer has to generate a unique port every time it makes a connection to a service. So if you go to something like ipchicken.com, they will show you what, what port, what randomly generated port that browser, that tab is using. So I just went to ipchicken.com. It shows me my public IP, and then under it, it'll say remote port. So I'm, I see that I'm using port 64408. So in this case, that browser tab has negotiated through my router using NAT to say, hey, any traffic coming into 64408, you hand it to this tab in this browser on this computer on the inside of the network. The problem that you run into when you put two routers in you, you essentially, you're doing that twice, right? The first is you're doing NAT over the public internet and through your first router, but now you're creating a double NAT by going a second time through. So stuff like web pages is going to be fine. That will pass through double NAT just fine. What won't work very well is things like universal plug and play, things that rely on NAT to be able to negotiate a port to be able to talk back and forth. So it's generally not advised to put two routers, one in front of the other, unless you know what you're doing and you've accounted for those types of things. In other words, that is to say, you know that you have a particular service or a thing that's going to need to be passed through. So you directly pass those ports all the way through to, to the end network. Now, if your goal, and it sounds like what your goal is, is you're just trying to get started. You're just trying to play with these things and you want to plug it in without tanking your existing setup so you can have like a little bit of a lab, play around, get comfortable, and then maybe at some point you put them all together. How, what's the final picture look like? Oh, there we go. Can you hear me? I can. Hey, what does the final picture, what are you skating towards? What's the end goal here? Uh, ultimately, the I just want to replace the equipment that I have now with the with the new equipment. Uh, so it's just trying to 
just trying to make that transition slowly. And I understand what you're talking about with the, it, it conceptually with the natting. Uh, and so I guess that makes sense to me. So, I mean, I guess, would you just recommend that you kind of have to just rip the bandaid off or, um, I kind of might've missed the last thing you said. But so. Yeah, no, I, I'm never in favor. So yeah. So uh, under, so the, the final goal, if the final goal is to replace it, what I would personally do, well, tell me this, what is your IP scheme? What is the first number in your, in a, as a private IP scheme in your house? Is it 192, 10, 172? 192. 192. So here's what I might do. If you're going through the trouble of replacing the router, I might implement a, I might change the IP scheme to start with 10 because that will give you access to all three octets if your network grows in the future. So to begin with, you could do like, 10100.100.0 and keep it a slash 24 so you'd have the same subnet stack as as the rest. So if you decided to make an IP change, I might do it there. But if you don't do that, there's no reason for you to have to rip the bandaid out. What you can do is you can configure your new router identical to your own one. Set up the same set up the exact same IP scheme, set up if you have any port forwarding, duplicate all of that, and in theory what you should be able to do is just unplug one and plug in the new one and away you go. And your services likely won't even know that anything has necessarily changed. They'll figure out that there's, oh, there's a new MAC address, there's a new place, but all the default gateways and all the rest of it, it's all going to essentially stay the same. So over time, your devices will refresh their DHCP lease, so that'll be about it. And you can absolutely swap one gateway for another without having to do a lot of a lot of reconfiguration. But if you're going through the trouble of switching out gateway, you might think a little bit ahead of like, well, what if I want to grow my network? Now would be the time to make an IP change. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so, and I, I was kind of figuring I would end up changing the IP, um, the IP address scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm kind of using probably the same right now. I have the scheme that probably 99% of the world has. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and I, and I thought, you know, it wouldn't be a bad idea to, to choose something a bit more unique. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but anyway, I understand what you're saying. That would be one way to I mean, one option would be just to, to take the, to, to set the new one up, like you said, like the old one. And then it then I could pretty easily unplug, plug the new one in. If I had any concerns, I could swap back easily enough. Right. I could go that route and then maybe change the uh, IP address later once i'm confident in the new equipment i guess that would be a, a one way to go yes the surgical approach yeah the, the reason the reason for unique ip private schemes where that you run into issues with that is if you ever have like a work vpn or even if you use like pia or something like that uh if you sometimes if you use very common ip schemes you'll find it to where you can't connect or you can connect but you won't be able to to reliably pass traffic because it gets confused steve am i missing anything here is am i am i giving good advice to to ryan so far I think that you and I have just slightly different approaches, right? I, I, the architect in me wants to dig more into stuff that is a little bit longer form than probably we have on the radio. I think in general, um, the idea of double knotting only applies when you are taking the output from the first router and mm-hmm. plugging it into the WAN port of the second router, which when a lot of people chain these things together, they're not doing that. Right. And so then double knot doesn't apply in that case because you still have one main router. So ultimately, the w- the way that I would approach this, if someone came to me to ask, like, hey, how would we sit down and do this together? Um, it would be probably not using the WAN port to avoid the double knot. And then I would have 
static IPs set against the new router as its route, for example, just as an example, so that mostly everybody else is still on the old equipment, but you have one or two clients like your desktop, which is what I do. I have my desktop and my laptop pointing at any kind of configuration changes that I want to make so that I kind of kind of hopefully QA things before things go bad. You still don't, so you, like I said. So you, you so ahead. just to be clear here, so in, in that scenario, so connecting the LAN ports works, but then you're going to have to, so it's a really a two-stage thing. Stage one is light the new router up, disable things like DHCP, and then connect it then once you're ready, then you would turn off on one side and turn on to the other. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Yeah, some something similar to that. But again, it would depend on what my goals are for having both routers on at the same time. Mm. Like, um, I, I'm sure that the caller doesn't exactly isn't actually able to put a finger on exactly what they're trying to do in order to get comfortable with. I don't know what 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 the the goal of burning it in is so you can kind of get comfortable to a new router. What's the new one you bought? So, well, I mean, so yes, to move and to get comfortable with the new equipment, but there's a, there's a learning aspect too. And I think that uh, Steve was kind of getting, kind of touching on that point is, is really just trying to understand better how things work. So, mm. um, you know, the, it's, I mean, that's, so it's, I mean, it's two, I guess that's a, that's a parallel goal, right? It's two different goals, but, but I mean, that's part of the whole process too. That's part of the reason why I want to use open WRT is to, to get more into, you know, it's not just a, an appliance that sits on the shelf and does the job, and I don't know mm. about it. Mm-hmm. I just try to learn more about what's actually going on. Um, so maybe a, here's maybe a simpler example, and I thought this would tie in, but um, if so, right now I have my my cable modem is a separate um, device. It does it's not a router; it's just a cable modem, and then I have a router plugged into that. And then I have my Wi-Fi is separate, too. So I've got three, you know, all three of those are separate devices doing separate jobs. Good. The cable modem, obviously, I have my WAN port on my um, router going. Uh, that's connected to my cable modem. Mm-hmm. And, the, the you know, I have the thought that the cable modem, I mean, it has an IP address. It has a, a web interface, but I don't know how to get to it because it's not on my network. Mm-hmm. Right. And so... What's the brand so of the cable modem? Do you happen to know the brand of the cable modem? Process was, what's that? Do you happen to know the brand of the cable modem? Aris? It's, um, Aris, yeah. Aris. one nine two one six eight zero one. You'd have to manually set your computer to that IP, but it will. It, there is an internal IP address that it statically assigns itself, and, and you can access the web UI. But here, here's, here's one thing to consider. It depends on what ISP you have, but some of them will let you split the WAN connection. So you can actually come out of your Aris modem into a switch, and then you could feed both routers. You could feed your new one and your old one at the same time. Midco will let you do this. They will let you pull up to 16 IP addresses. And so you can have two modems lit up at the same time on separate internet. Well, it's like shares the modem, but you get two separate public IPs. Oh, really? Okay. So there's a third third option in the mix. To do that, you have to have a switch. Yes. Yes. Uh, you've got your cable modem, and then you've got the switch, and then you could have multiple routers plugged into that switch. Correct. And they each are getting different public IP addresses, but that mm-hmm. depends on your ISP. Yes. Okay. So I could always – I mean, that would be an interesting thing to try. Uh, it, what When you do that, though, are you then able to access one network from another? New. Um, is that a possibility, or 
or no, you're at that point. You're setting up something. It's it's like setting something up on an island. It's a whole it's a whole new kit and caboodle. If your goal is to kind of slowly surgically move from one to the other, Steve's approach is probably the best one. Connect the go into the router the first time. Shut all of the services that are currently being handled by your your current router off. Then connect the LAN ports together. Leave the WAN port on the new router disconnected, and then as you're ready, start shuffling stuff from one to the other. Turn DHCP off on the old one. Turn DHCP on the, the new one, and, and start sliding services over until everything is moved onto the w, Open WRT router. Yeah, and then eventually you turn off the DHCP on the old router and turn it on on the new router. Right. And okay, and that's kind of that's kind of the last. I mean, at that when you do that, you're pretty much probably done with the old router. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. But again, so, yeah, uh, uh, that makes sense to me. Okay. Well, you give that a shot. Give us a call back if that doesn't work or if you run into any issues. And uh, yeah, we'd love to. We'd love to take your calls. Eight fifty five four fifty. No, it's eight five five four five zero six sixty four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Sharper zero seven four six in the Geek Lab. You can read about it at geeklab.ninja Says, hey, Noah and Steve, I'm so happy to be able to join the show again. I was wondering if you have any recommendations for a tool to host my personal self host blog. I have the idea to document my self-host journey and have it all on a blog. I was trying to use WordPress. It's very confusing on where to start. There are just so many things. Thank you for the advice. Keep up the great work. Steve, what would you do for Sharper if you wanted to have a self-hosted blog? What would I do personally? I probably would use something that uses static files. Um, there's there's several out there. I know um, the name is escaping me. Hugo. I know somebody in the Geek Lab is screaming at me right now telling Hugo. me. Yes, there you go. Um, I probably would go something like Hugo as opposed to something more fancy. If I was trying to get like, there's a difference between a, a blog that's providing information and a, like a, a website that's actually trying to be flashy and, you know, right. doing, showing pictures and stuff like that. Okay. Here's a, here's a thought for you. So absolutely go Hugo.io. You pick out a template, you can get up and running. It's super easy. And the nice thing about Hugo, as Steve was pointing out, it's an engine that builds static HTML. So, it's stupid simple. And then the other side of it is the only thing that you have to know, you feed it markdown files and the engine spits out HTML. It's a beautiful thing. Um, but here's a thought. If I were building, if I were trying to document my entire journey on something, is a blog appropriate? What about a wiki? Like what if he did wiki JS and then just, hey, here's as I'm doing and I'm just going to pick on something. I'm going to self-host, you know, uh, YouTube seems like it'll be appropriate today. Here are all the things I've tried. Here are the ones that work. Here are the ones that didn't. Of the ones that work, here's the ones I liked. Here are all the steps on how I got it set up. And, oh, here's my, you know, my configure something. What would you think of that? That's how I roll. But I also don't publish that, right? Mm. So Wiki.js does a really good job of providing you facilities to, uh, you know, post it publicly on the Internet, provided that you know how to run such things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... I did temp, like kind of tinker around with that. It it does have some really good facilities in that fashion, but I also don't like the stuff that I do is from my notes, right? I'm not publishing it online at this point. I so here's an, so and and then you could split the difference, right? So you could use you could start with WikiJS, you could flesh everything out, and then as you get things ready to go and you land on whatever template or whatever thing you want to do, well, guess what? WikiJS is all marked down too, so you could just copy pasta and away you go, Bob's your uncle. You'd be on the internet. YouTube has become a a function of our lives. It is important. It's an important source of information. 
It's an important resource to be able to learn how to fix things around the house, and it can be a great source of entertainment for your kids. The downside is privacy nightmare, right? The other side is it, at the end of the day, is beholden to a large corporation. And so what the alphabet decides, the alphabet does, and you follow along. Wouldn't it be nice if you could self-host your own YouTube? But wait you'd still be missing the content. So Steve has been playing with an open source project that's been around for a couple of years and it just found a new home in the oven household. Steve, tell me about Tube Archivist. So uh, I heard about Tube Archivist on some other podcasts and I I forgot about it because it wasn't relevant to my life. And then this past week, um, we're trying to figure out, strike that balance between allowing the kids to consume content, but without going crazy, because we've tried that in the past and we found that, you know, preteen kids, not so trustable. So we found them into all kinds of things. And so anyways, in in a mad dash, I finally did find the podcast after I had like a dozen tabs open, like which podcast and which month was it that I was listening to this. And so what I like about Tube Archivist I have always archived things that I pay for, like Udemy and stuff like that, um, as a way to keep that offline and, and take it wherever I go. And I was looking for how do I do something like this for my kids? Previously, I have done just taken the raw files and put them on Plex. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't give you the nicest UI experience. And, and Noah and I were discussing this, you know, like folder structure and fine is like it's, it's ingrained in us because we've been in it for so long but <laughs> most people <laughs> are not like i've got to click on this folder and then i'm going to click on this one and this one has 15 folders and i'm going to click on this one and i'm 17 folders deep and then i get to my file because yeah, that's but, how i've organized things but steve subdirectories make it easier to index files and then the file manager runs faster yes exactly uh but that's just not how people's brains work and so cody or plex didn't really strike a chord in that way and so uh, it was okay, but it never got any traction because they have free access to our local kids plex, uh, but it never really got any traction because it was just a big enough barrier they wouldn't go. So I started poking around for this and Tube Archivist, basically what it allows you to do, it's meant to back up your own YouTube channel. That That's the primary. I don't know what jurisdiction you the listeners are in or what what kind of legality there is for downloading an entire channel that is not yours. So the disclaimer here is it's meant to back up your own channel. But the idea here is it can pull down videos and build a download playlist. And what I like about this is that it gives you a nice friendly way to do that. So like in YouTube DLP or you know YouTube DL or, or any of those other programs, you can feed it a channel and it'll just go pull down all the videos. You can also feed it like a supplementary file, like skip these or whatever, but that's a lot of work because you have to go and build those files yourself and and know what to skip. In this case, um, there is a an educational channel where some of the stuff was is not appropriate for preteen is what I think. So I pointed it at the channel and as it builds the download list, you can just say, ignore this one, which made it very interactive and easy for me to curate which files were going to end up on the server. On top of that, what I really liked about this is it gives you a nice web UI. I think the web UI is done really well. Um, congrats to the the developers. But they, 
it shows you stats from YouTube if you're into that sort of stuff, like how many views it had at the time that you you scraped the video and how many thumbs up and you can turn on the thumbs down uh, and all of that sort of stuff. But you can also do things like you can actually go get the comments if you really wanted to. Uh, and so it really is the ability to go and download an entire channel and kind of back it up offline. It gives you a nice web UI and as much as I loathe this, I use the Docker Compose because I couldn't find <laughs> I couldn't find an easy way to for the instructions to stand this up because it's got Redis and Elasticsearch and then its own tube archiver to to handle this all. So it's 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 running in Podman Compose, but it's still running in a Compose file, which I just I don't know why viscerally against. The container says the container guy. So so in, in this case, Steve, would you, we've kind of We've swapped roles. Usually, I'm the guy going, look, Steve, something's on the internet. Isn't it new and fancy and shiny? And isn't it great? And you're the guy going, listen, VI works, and a terminal works, and a text editor works, and an NFS share, and why do you need more than that? It'll work just fine. So we're, we're kind of playing each other's roles. But what's, what's interesting to me is I, I tried to get rid of YouTube in my house. So first of all, talk about funny networking questions. Trying to disconnect YouTube from a household is a very difficult networking thing to do. If you do the typical DNS trickery that we network people do to try to stop YouTube from coming into your house, a bunch of stuff you never would have thought breaks, breaks. Because YouTube is just intertwined and intertangled with stuff like you wouldn't believe. So it's not actually as easy as you think. But I tried because I was unhappy with the directions I saw my kids going, and my family going, just getting sucked into YouTube. And I thought, we're going to live without it for 90 days and see how that goes. And it uh, didn't go well, Steve. And I was almost a mutiny, and I had to acquiesce. And so I, I gave in and said, okay, YouTube is back. But one of the things that has bit all of my kids enough times that I think I have an in here is they go to look at a video, or they go to watch a video, or they sometimes get you know really into a channel, and then... For whatever reason, that content is no longer available. The user takes it down or they can't remember where they, what person they were following or whatever it is. For whatever reason, they lose track of those videos. And that has bit all of them enough that I think if I said, hey, you can watch YouTube in a different way. All of the same creators and all of the same information that you're looking for is still available to you. However, comma, it's going to wind up on in our case, are on our NAS, and so you can watch it on your normal TV with regular speakers, which you'll be able to hear easier. And, oh, by the way, they won't have any opportunity to take the content away from you. It'll be there forever. Once you watch it one time, it's there. And then I started thinking, well, even beyond kids, think about things that are politically unpopular. YouTube has to – it's a business first and foremost. So once something becomes unpopular enough – People have, we've gotten to the day and age where it's not okay for me to say, you and I disagree on this thing and we'll just intellectually disagree. You can't have that. If we disagree and something is wrong, I'm using my air finger quotes there, it has to be scrubbed from the face of the internet. And YouTube is going to comply with those things to the extent that it hurts their business model. In this case, once you get something, again, whether you agree or disagree, there's a whole bunch of information or disinformation, as some people would call it, that has been entirely nuked from orbit on YouTube and you just can't get to it anymore, which is kind of 
kind of sad. So this can be a great way to archive material that you're interested in. And it, and this is particularly true if you fire, follow, um, how do I say this, spicier YouTube channels. It's going to automatically download the content for you. And then even if the YouTube channel removes or deletes that content before you even realize it was a thing and before you've had an opportunity to watch it, you still have a copy. And then on top of that, safer access for the kids because you have some control over what they can get to and what they can't get to. And as platforms change the content, your content in your house stays the same because it's all local. So I think there's a tremendous privacy aspect to it from the standpoint that Google is going to start sucking analytics from one gigantic pot instead of individual users. Secondly, I understand that there is some documentation as to how to directly connect this through a VPN. So you could maybe even obfuscate that a little bit more. Then I wanted to get into some of the problems with it. So there isn't much. You've said that you're happy with it as is. I've not personally used this, but I'm extraordinarily intrigued and your timing couldn't be more righteous because I'm literally on the I'm on the 37 amp hour. I'm living on an island. If I didn't have access to the Internet, could I be a self-sufficient human being? And I'm finding the answer to that is yes. You just brought YouTube to my island or gave me the tool to do it. So I'm, I'm incredibly intrigued. Some of the things that you said were maybe a bit of a shortcoming or maybe a blind sight, an ability to improve upon things like access control. Talk about what could maybe be improved. Where is there some room for growth? So I thought it was a weird dichotomy that they have integrated um, identity management providers like LDAP or Active <laughs> Directory, but all of the users can go in and do whatever they want regardless. So it gives all 13,000 of them that, are, <laughs> that, you, yeah. that you needed to tie to your central directory service. So I made my kids a login and then went in and realized I can delete videos and I could add channels and stuff like that, Ooh. which is not what I want. Like ideally what I want is that they go and just consume the content that we've already kind of curated for them. Honestly, largely, this is currently being used for schoolwork-related stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's it's educational stuff, and it's just, that, hey, you can go here and watch your educational stuff without me having to worry that the YouTube algorithm took you somewhere or you went somewhere <laughs> else. Like, you know. Um, so, yeah, that it's a bit of a downside because they can still go in there, and currently it's on the roadmap in air quotes, according to the, the FAQ, there's just no way to restrict that. A couple of honorable mentions we also wanted to get out there. So the first is NVIDIAS. You can learn more at NVIDIAS.io, and it's a privacy-focused, ethically designed ability to front end to YouTube. So essentially, you can do searches on YouTube. It won't do ads. It supports a developer API and will allow you to go grab some videos. So not going to be as featureful probably um, as the archivist, but it is a really great tool nonetheless. There's also Archivy, which you can learn more about archivy.github.io. And of course, we'll have all the links for you in the show notes of podcast.asnoahshow.com. So Archivy and Archivebox, you can kind of think of it like a local hosted version of Wayback Machine. So if you've ever used the Wayback Machine to go to a site that has been taken off the Internet and it's archived there and you're able to go back and look at it, this is where you can host your own version of that. So as you go look at websites, it caches them, it stores them for you, and now you have a copy, a separate copy of that page in your own little world. Um, 
And then there's Cirex. So you can learn more at Cirex.github.io. But Cirex is a self-hosted meta search engine. And so you can think of it kind of like the power of Google without the privacy invasiveness of Google. So Cirex will run on, like, let's say a DigitalOcean droplet. And you visit the DigitalOcean droplet and it presents a search page. But when you do the like when you provide your search terms it's actually querying google then it delivers those results back in your crx instance and then of course when you're clicking on it you're getting a tracking id from crx is generating that for you not your local machine because as far as google's concerned crx is the client not you and of course the more people that use your crx instance the harder it is to track what user did what and they have public and so it's self-hostable. So that's kind of the idea, kind of the theme of the episode, if you haven't picked that up. But you, they have public instances available as well. So I, I guess, how far do you take this, Steve? Is this something that you look at and you say, man, if I could self-host YouTube, I could see my family getting disconnected from the Internet for a period of time? Has that resonated at all? Or is it they like the Internet, they see it as all one ubiquitous thing, either I'm connected or I'm not connected, and this is just a way to exert a little bit more control over what content doesn't doesn't come into your house. Did I lose you? I just caught the back end oh. of that question. Oh, sorry. My question was, has this inspired you and or does it, does it further your perspective of hey, I potentially want to self-host everything disconnected from the internet, or is it more a function of your family sees the internet as ubiquitous as connected? So either they're on the internet or they're connected or they're not connected. There isn't really a desire to live in this kind of middle land. Uh, kind of a difficult question. I mean, I'm I'm an avid self-hoster for mm -hmm. sure. And that that's definitely part of it. But more... What this allowed me to do was I created a VLAN that can't get on the internet, but only has access to the Plex server and to to Tube Archiver. And I can say, hey, here, your laptops can go on this Wi-Fi network. You can play games together because you'll be on the same network, but I don't have to worry about them going off onto the internet unsupervised. And so, mm. you know, it's it's kind of somewhere in between, I suppose. So you've created an island You've created a firewalled island that you allow your kids to kind of play in, in a safe space. Yeah, it's it's kind of like, you know, we, for everything else that is remotely dangerous, whether it's ideological or physically dangerous, there's always some sort of on-ramp. But for whatever reason with the internet, we're just like, whatever, go nuts. <laughs> you know? What could happen? As, as opposed to some sort of training ground. And so we're trying to take the approach of like, the internet's not bad, but... You know, I wouldn't put my 11-year-old behind a car and say, yes. go drive down the highway. A hundred percent. No, th this is what's so appealing to me. I think this is a fantastic approach. I really do. And, I, and the other thing is, it's interesting to me and it's exciting to me that these tools become available to people that you can listen to this episode and then you can go download this thing and then you can go spin this up. I mean, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if I had told you like, yeah, I want to mirror part of the internet on a server in my house, I'd been like, oh man, you better have a big budget because you want to build the internet. And, you're, and now it's like, okay, it's like one playbook away. Yeah. In this case, it's just a compose file and, and you have to do a little bit of reading. Like you can't just grab their compose file if you want to do, uh, anything outside of their default but it's not bad it's what's not the bad. what's the end like so you do most of the viewing on you do most of the viewing on in the web browser through their interface is there a front end to other things if you wanted to put it like on a tv or something like that 
Mm, not that I'm aware of, because it's just, as far as I know, it's just a, um, I believe it's a Node app. I could be mistaken, but I believe it's just a Node.js app running on port 8000. I, I, I don't have, like, again, the timing of this is extraordinarily rich, right? If it had come like a year before, I probably wouldn't care. And, and a few years from now, I'd have my, my own thing where I think I'm going to have to tweak this a little bit to get it to fit my, my specific use cases. This is where our approach differs a little bit. I very rarely want every video from any particular channel. I often pick and choose, right? So there'll be a couple of videos here and a couple of videos there. It's very rare that I'm like, yeah, every video that's ever here. And as you correctly pointed out, when you do those things in lack of tools, uh, things like, you know, the, the archive tube archivist, if you don't have those tools, then the videos all become out of order and it becomes very difficult to track what came from what playlist and what order to watch what in. But what I do have is a desire to take content from YouTube, particularly when there's documentaries or other things that are posted there. And I like organizing the, them myself because to a degree, TV shows are going to get scraped. Movies will get scraped. And I expect those things to kind of work like a traditional media thing. But then the rest of it, the stuff that I'm interested in is way too niche for it to be scraped by anything. And I just accepted that long ago. So I just have an other media folder that is divided into topics. And, it, you know, there's nuclear disasters and there's COVID and there's war and there's all, sort, all manner of things that are in there. And I just I kind of nest them. And where Tube, Ar uh, where Tube Archiver comes to me is... I took archives, excuse me, the ability to map the download locations to this gigantic folder. And I have one for incoming media, just have it dump all of the files there. I would be able to go in and, and automate the process of downloading and then I can organize them how I always have been. So uh, it seems powerful. It is for your use case. The restriction is that you can't change the file names. So like if you do YouTube mm. DLP, you can actually go in and do that. But because they are providing like a curated experience that's being stored in, in Elasticsearch ultimately, mm -hmm. um, they currently do not allow you to tinker around with the file names. That's fair. But as long as I as long as I can make where it's downloading the files accessible, I can get them because my goal would be to get them onto a TV, right? If I already have a TV and I've got a little player that can play them, my goal would be I want to watch it on, on my 50-inch display, not on my 13-inch laptop. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like I said... So essentially what it does is it creates a hash and stores that hash in the, the Elasticsearch so that it can tie the metadata to it mm. and it names the, the file the name of the hash. Mm -hmm. So from your perspective, it would look like a bunch of gibberish. You'd probably have to go rename the files after it downloaded. I see. Okay. Well, a bit of tweaking. But here's the deal. At some point, I'm sure they're going to come out with front ends for Cody and all the rest of this. This is kind of early days. It's getting a lot of traction, but it's at point version point four. So we'll continue to follow it, and uh, we'll keep you abreast of the latest, as they say. Music interviews, we're out of time. Podcast.asknoahshow.com. See you next week.